Matthew 26 tonight um, as we uh, learn from Jesus, who is our teacher. In order to get to the text, i got to tell you a little bit about myself. Um, just a few short weeks after I turned the age of 22, I got married. I stood across from my fiance and said, I do. And she was 23, I was 22. We were young, uh, a little naive, but we loved each other and we got married. <laughs> and we moved to uh, San Antonio, Texas, so I could finish out my bachelor's in chemistry at the university there in San Antonio. Um, and a year after getting married, <clears throat> excuse me, a year after getting married, we left all of our friends and family, everything we knew and loved, the great country of Texas. Um, <laughs> I say that jokingly. Um, we left all of that behind to do this crazy thing and pioneer ministry with our friends Patrick and Bethany uh, at a university that didn't have a spirit-filled community. We had been a part of something like it in college, and we wanted to see students who didn't have the opportunity to engage in something like that uh, be able to, and we were transformed by it, and so we wanted to make that available. We felt like if God did it in our life, he wants to do it through our life, and so we said yes, um, and there was never particularly a moment where the, the clouds parted and the Lord said, go to South Carolina, but I heard about a need, and I signed up willingly, um, me and my wife and, and our friends, to, to do that. Um, we were young, like I said. We were living off a missionary salary. And when we moved here, it made a lot of sense financially. If you're trying to buy a house downtown, it's very difficult. <laughs> we wanted to be near campus, so we shared a home with our friends uh, that we moved here with. And we split the rent, and it worked out great for us. Um, and that was the first year. Uh, that home, our little two-story house, uh, about seven minutes away from the campus, became our hub for ministry. We had students in and out of our house. We had Bible studies taking place on a weekly basis. We had parties, you name it, we had it there. That was our, our place where ministry happened. We still drive by it and say, that's, that's the Butler house. You know, that's so much memory and life happened there. Um, after the end of our first year of ministry, um, our friends got pregnant with their first child. And so naturally, they wanted a little more privacy, welcoming their baby into the home. And so we left and we got an apartment that we could afford. We actually split a two-bedroom apartment with the college student that was involved in our ministry um, to make the rent a little more affordable. And then we went through this phase, this phase of life, which maybe some of you are familiar with. It's that phase of life where all of your friends start checking the boxes on like major life accomplishments. <laughs> so our friends who had their first baby, which was one accomplishment, also was, were able to buy a home, their first home, and bring that baby home to, which was exciting. We had another couple join and join us on staff that moved from Texas, and they also got their first house, and they had their child. And so when you're in that phase of life where you're watching all your close friends hit these major milestones, you start to think, well, maybe we should do some of those things too. <laughs> Let's start moving down the path a little bit. And so very naively, we just said, let's go get our first house. We'll just do it, and it'll be great. And so we got the information of the realtor that they had been using. We went toward a house. We loved it. Looking back, I'm so glad that the Lord didn't let us get that house because <laughs> it had a plethora of issues. But we found this house that we thought we loved, and we met with a mortgage broker who I could tell was trying not to laugh as he looked at our finances, looked at how much we made, and said, there's, there's no way in hecky dern that you will ever buy a house in this city. Um, and naturally, it's funny looking back now, but naturally we were very disappointed. Uh, it, was, it was really tough. And not only was it about the home, but it started to become about 
what other decisions in our life are going to be affected because we decided to be missionaries and to live on this, um, to live by faith, really. Obviously, we weren't, we weren't accounting for all that God would do um, and providing, which I don't have time to tell you tonight, but nevertheless, this was our experience. And I remember one night where it kind of came to a head and we just held each other and we were crying on our couch, our couch that was given to us for free in an apartment that we shared with a college student. Um, just weeping about the disappointment. We were excited about something and it wasn't going to happen the way that we thought it would. And that is ultimately one of the great questions that we as Christians have to answer. How do we deal with disappointment? How do we as followers of Christ handle disappointment well? Because it's something that comes to all of us. You know, pain and suffering, it knocks on all of our doors at some point in time, and no one is immune. And how we handle it in our lives is, is paramount to our walks with God. What do we do when our life's not trending the direction we wanted it to, when it's not going up and to the right, when we can't Instagram the, the moments that are happening? Um, how do we handle that? What do we do? That's an important question for all of us to answer. And some of us sort of default to a, a sort of stoichism, if you're familiar with that. It's just a, basically a way of saying whatever's ha- going to happen is going to happen and I'm just going to be okay. I'm just going to get on with the business of life. But I just want to just side note and say this, that being okay is not an adequate foundation for life. If your strategy to, to make your inner world okay is just to make your out, outer world okay, that is doomed for failure. <laughs> Because, like I said, it's coming. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. When are we going to to be disappointed? Additionally, in in Christian circles, and particularly among charismatics, which we're a proud part of that uh, movement, we tend to actually teach, like it's when something bad happens, we tend to distort the gospel in a way that privileges us. Sort of like a prosperity gospel of like, well, don't worry, the best is yet to come. Or we, we turn into this weird kind of theological determinism where we, every, like everything that bad that happens to us is meant for our good. Or like God ordained it for our good. And we know that he can take those things and make them beautiful. Um, but it's, it's interesting how we do that. Um, it's not all bad. But sometimes in an attempt to alleviate pain, we lose sight of the fact that our Lord's life didn't end in some kind of glorious exaltation, but it ended in a mock trial, in a kangaroo court, and shame on a cross. That was his trajectory. And we can end up with a skewed view of life that doesn't set us up for success when it comes to the inevitable pain and suffering of the human condition. So my question for us tonight, and what I'd like to learn from Jesus tonight, is how do we deal with disappointment? And not only just disappointment, but really just kind of emotional pain in general. The whole spectrum of of anger and jealousy and anxiety and sadness and insecurity and lust. How do we deal with the spectrum of emotions that a lot of times we don't have a good uh, blueprint for how to deal with in in our culture, in our society. We know what to do with the good stuff, you know, when we're happy or we're excited. We, we have good templates for that kind of stuff, but we don't always have a good template for how we, should, how we should live when we have these bad emotions. And I don't say bad like morally, I just mean kind of objectively. Um, and so as always, 
we look to our teacher, Jesus, to, to show us how we ought to live. So turn with me, verse 36. We're going to pick it up here. It says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. Now Gethsemane was, or is, a garden at the western foot of the Mount of Olives. And that word Gethsemane actually literally means olive press. Maybe some of you have been there and seen it. Uh, it's an incredible place. I, have the I haven't had the privilege of going, but I plan on getting there. Um, and we pray. We pray fervently for them. Um, but this, this olive press was actually a tool that would be used to crush olives that would release its oil for the benefit of others. It's a fitting sort of word picture for a place that Jesus is going to prepare to be crushed for the benefit of others. Um, and it's in this place. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, they're kind of the usual suspects. There's a couple instances in the gospel where Jesus pulls them aside. Um, the Mount of Transfiguration is one. The healing of Jairus' daughter is another. Um, so he takes them and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. I find that language so interesting, and we'll, we'll get into it a little bit, but he, it says he began to be sorrowful and troubled, almost like he allowed himself to start feeling what was really going on underneath the surface. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Some translations say overwhelmed. That in itself is just a packed word, overwhelmed. Have you ever felt like, man, there's more going on than I can physically bear? Jesus is feeling that here. And he says, remain here and watch with me. He's looking to his closest friend saying, I need you here with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, cup is a first century idiom that means your allotment of pain and suffering in life. So as best as I understand it, Jesus is saying, let this allotment of pain and suffering pass from me. It's overwhelming to me. He goes on to say, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Oftentimes we're let down even by our closest friends. And he said to Peter, So you cannot watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. It's, it's a similar prayer as the first one, but there's kind of a shift in it. There's a, a, a willingness to say, okay, God, if this is what you have, I'm ready for it. Let it happen. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See that the hour is at hand, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. He's, he's ready for what comes next. He's, he's rising to the challenge. And he says, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. There's so much we can learn here from Jesus about our own Gethsemane moments that we have in our life. And most of us will never face anything as dramatic or um, as heavy as Jesus. But we'll all face our many Gethsemane moments. Um, and whether it's major or minor, there's just a cup that is ours to drink. And it's not what we want, and it doesn't work out how we want. And so we're going to look at Jesus on how he responds to it. But before we look at Jesus, there's at least 
three or four other responses I want to look at tonight that we can learn from. So we're going to go through these responses and we'll break and then we'll compare and contrast to Jesus. So the first one is Peter's response. And the very next story, and we're going to talk about this more next week, but in the very next story, if you're familiar, uh, Judas comes and they come to arrest him and Peter takes the sword of the servant of the high priest and just goes for a whack and just cuts off the ear of one of the servants, um, which is just gnarly to think about. And Jesus takes the, the servant's ear and puts it back on. Um, but that's the first response. That's kind of the classic fight or flight response. This isn't going the way that I want it to. This isn't the reality that I expected. And so I'm going to fight back and try to change reality by my own means, by my own hands, um, trying to bend reality to his own will. And if this is our response to pain and suffering, to fight back or to push back or to rail against the reality of God and what he has for us, we will inevitably not bend reality, but we will bend ourselves. We will become the kind of people that are bitter, the kind of people that are angry, the kind of people that are not satisfied or content like Paul talks about. And in doing that, we not only hurt ourselves and our own souls, but we hurt others in the process. It reminds me of the, the disciples getting rebuked uh, outside the Samaritan village when they weren't welcomed in the village, they were kicked out, and the disciples say, well, shall we call down fire? Yeah, like, let's punish these guys. Um, the reality didn't go as we expected. You're supposed to be the Messiah. You're supposed to be the king. You're supposed to be respected. And it didn't go like we expected. Let's, let's fight back against this. Let's rail against what is happening. And I'm sure you guys can think of a million other classic fight or flight examples. But that's Peter's response to this disappointment. And I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't ever try to change things or we should just roll over and play dead when, when things come our way. By all means, if you have the ability to do something about a situation, you feel the peace of God to go in that direction, by all means, you should go after that. The problem is, and I said this earlier, is that much of our life is out of our control. I, there was, I read a statistic uh, in a psychological survey that said something like 80% of what we think is in our control is actually in our control. <laughs> so much of our life is out of our control. And it can't be fixed. And it can't be solved. And no matter how hard we try or how hard we fight, nothing happens. It can only be accepted, grieved, forgiven, released, and embraced. The way of Peter is to not go quietly into the night, but to rage against that which disappoints you. And in doing so, you can miss what God is actually trying to invite you into in that season. So next up is Judas's response. So you are all familiar with Judas Iscariot. He, in a different way than Peter, decides to turn away from following Jesus. We see that he's the one that betrays Jesus and hands him over to the high priest. And what Judas is really doing is he's looking for life from another source, outside of Jesus, a life that doesn't come from him, but comes from Rome or some other way. He's disappointed with this Messiah that he's been following, and now he's decided to take measures into his own hands. This is, for me, reminds me of the parable of the sower, the seed um, 
where Jesus says that when trouble comes because of persecution of the word, they fall away. This is the way of Judas. Let's just simply stop following Jesus when he doesn't deliver the life that we wanted, the life that we thought we would get. We turn and we look for life from somewhere else. When we don't agree with Jesus and we don't like the path that he has carved out for us. And if we turn away from following Jesus, we are, we are taking Judas's response. We go looking for another Messiah to get the life that we crave. So that's no good. So next up is Thomas's response. Now, early, earlier in the story, before Jesus gets to the garden, he has this, Thomas has this great line. Jesus says he's headed to Jerusalem to, to die. And Thomas says, let us go to Jerusalem to die with him. Just a great little snapshot. And you're like, that's not something I'm stepping up and saying, amen. <laughs> let's go die with him. Um, but I think kind of all throughout the Gospels, Thomas represents this stoic kind of person. And he may very well have been. Stoic, Stoicism was at the height of its popularity during uh, this time and during this era. And um, so he may have well been that. That's a personal opinion. Um, but basically, if you're not familiar with this philosophy of Stoicism, it's, it's an agnostic approach to life which says we don't really know what's going on in the cosmos. We don't really know if there's a God or gods, but obviously they have no care about what's going on in our life, so let's get busy with the business of life. Let's get on living. Um, the Stoic approach is to, to lower your expectations, to expect things to go badly, which granted is not at all terrible advice, right? Some uh, psychiatrists have said that happiness equals reality minus expectations. That's something that we try to go through in our premarital counseling is, what expectations do you have? Let's list them out and make sure they're realistic. <laughs> um, and, you know, this, this approach, what you're going to end up finding with Stoicism is, this is why so many people that have climbed the ladder of wealth and popularity are miserable. They had this expectation that it would fulfill them, and then they were found wanting. They were found disappointed at the end. And the flip side of that is actually also true, that some of the poorest of the poor in the world are some of the happiest people because they have no expectations for what life should bring them. But this was developed in a world where there was no resurrection. There was no hope. There was no access uh, to God. And Jesus came on the scene and saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He made heaven a reality for us. He made the kingdom of God accessible for us. We know that there is an Easter. We know that there is a resurrection. And we, sh of all people, should be filled with wonder and of hope. So as helpful as Stoicism can be, it's missing this key ingredient of hope. And if you shut that part of your life off, that hopeful part of you, you let a crucial component of your soul die. I think this is what Jesus meant when he brings the children to him and says, unless you become like one of these, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. I think this is part of what Jesus meant in saying that is children are full of wonder. Everything to them is, is beautiful and they see, they see the, the beauty in everything. And if we take this approach to life, if we take Thomas's approach to our disappointment, we end up losing the sense of wonder that we ought to have in life that Jesus wants us to have. And then lastly, 
uh, my personal favorite way, my <laughs> the way that I often approach things, um, is the way of the 12, which is to just sleep. They fall asleep in the garden. I've got three small kids, and so a four-year-old, a two-year-old, an eight-month-old, and so just sleeping would be heavenly. And I know that that's on the horizon one day, so it's okay. Um, but they just sleep. So this is the way of the 12 is that when things get hard or sad, we sleep. And we do this sometimes literally, but oftentimes uh, metaphorically. We just numb our pain with our cultural narcotic of choice. Whether it's our career, whether it's eating out, or we make ourselves busy, or we travel, or it's our sexuality, or our friends, or our social life, we, we check out. Sometimes we disappear into the black hole of Netflix, or doom scroll on Instagram, or TikTok. In some way, shape, or form, we check out. We, we fall asleep. And it's worth saying that for, for some people, the way of Jesus and, and spirituality and religion in general isn't a way of making sense of reality, but a way of falling asleep or escaping it. People use, this is a quote, people use spiritual ideas or practices to set, sidestep or avoid facing unresolved emotional issues or psychological wounds. We use it as a crutch oftentimes when we can't step up to the things that are in our life or when we're disappointed. And I think this is especially a temptation in, in a charismatic part of the church, like I said, that we're gladly a part of. Um, we use spiritual, spirituality to hide from our own soul. It's just a way of sleeping in church, of not facing reality or dealing with things that are going on. We busy ourselves in church and fill ourselves with, with things that are outside of our own personal uh, emotions and depth. And that's the way of the 12.